Support for NPR comes from ADP. Say you're in HR and a solar flare adds an extra hour to each day. How would this impact business? ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to help your business take on the next anything. ADP, always designing for people. A warning, this episode contains discussion of sex. The series Fellow Travelers chronicles the passionate and complicated relationship between two gay men from the McCarthy era of the 1950s through the AIDS crisis of the 1980s. Over that time, the two men, played by Matthew Bomer and Jonathan Bailey, follow opposite paths. One marries and has kids for the sake of his career. The other dedicates himself to living openly and becomes a protester, an activist. In the meantime, they have lots and lots and lots of sex. I'm Glenn Weldon, and today we're talking about fellow travelers on Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the official Hacks podcast from Max. Join the creators and showrunners of Hacks as they discuss each episode and speak with the cast and crew about the making of the series. Listen to the official Hacks podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Moms know the ups and downs of life. It's what makes them great subjects for books. This is one of the things that fiction can do, right? It can give us a window into the battles that each person is waging or facing, but it doesn't mean that we condone her actions this week on npr's book of the day podcast we are discussing books centering mothers so call your mom then tune into the book of the day podcast from npr pro-palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country but from the eyes of students what are we missing from the outside these protests are painted as really violent when that couldn't be further from the truth I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot. On It's Been a Minute from NPR. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. Joining me today is NPR film critic Bob Mondello. Hey, Bob. Hey, Glenn. Good to be here. It's great to have you. Fellow Travelers begins in Washington, D.C. during the era of Senator Joseph McCarthy's crusade against communists and homosexuals in the federal government. Matthew Bomer plays Hawkins, or Hawk, a handsome, swaggering State Department official who hides an active gay sex life even as he courts and ultimately marries the daughter of a powerful senator. She's played by Allison Williams. Jonathan Bailey plays Tim, a gay man who works for McCarthy. He believes in McCarthy's cause and struggles with his devout Catholic faith, even as he falls madly in love with Hawk. I committed mortal sins for you. Oh, here we go. I could go to hell. Hell's a fantasy, Skippy. So is heaven. The Trinity, democracy, and the holy war against communism. Grand ideas that just get people killed. Now, The series is about the tension between the two men, both sexual and ideological. Hawk is perfectly content to stay in the closet and live a lie if it means he can hold on to his position. Tim wants more, and as the years pass, the two men keep coming back together, only to find the power dynamic between them shifting back and forth. The series is told largely in flashback as a middle-aged Hawk reflects on his relationship with Tim, who is now dying of AIDS. Fellow Travelers is based on a 2007 novel by Thomas Mallon. It was created for television by Ron Neiswanner, who wrote the films Philadelphia and My Policeman. 
The series is airing weekly on Showtime and streaming on Paramount+. Plus. You figure that out. I can't be bothered. Bob, <laughs> it is so cool to have you talking about television for us. Have we ever done that before with you? Well, I thought you were having me on solely because I'm old enough to have actually remembered a lot of this. I mean, that's, it's a factor. <laughs> I, you're right, because I don't usually think that television series deserve to be series. I, I'm used to thinking in terms of two and a half hours for a movie and three and a half if you're Martin Scorsese and you're doing it, but basically you can fit the whole plot of a novel into that and why on heaven's name would you want to deal with it on a longer term? And oh my God, this makes sense. All right, tell me why. Well, partly because you're dealing with four decades of material mm -hmm. and a, a whole bunch of characters. It's not just a, a couple of characters who pop in and out. There were places where I was thinking, okay, you could maybe do without this part, but not a lot. And mm -hmm. the, the complexity of how things are changing over the four decades is what makes this so compelling. Uh, Angels in America is the same material in a way, right? It's, it's also talking about Roy Cohn and about mm -hmm. AIDS. It, it takes you all the way through. And it does it very, very differently. And I, I was thinking of this as sort of the melodrama version. Interesting. But I think it's complex enough that you'd have trouble compressing it. You'd lose a lot if you compressed it. There's the, the characters have real character arcs. There are big changes in them across decades. Mm -hmm. And I, I think you'd, you'd lose a lot. Yeah, that's interesting because all of that, we'll get to this, but all of that mm. is an addition of the show. The novel focused on these two characters in the 1950s. Oh. The show is doing a lot of this heavy lifting you're talking about. But let's start off by talking about the chemistry between Bomer and Bailey, by which I mean, let's talk about sex, baby. I mean, <laughs> the phrase I kept coming back to, Bob, was insultingly attractive actors. Yeah. I mean, every time they take off their shirt, you're like, just shut up. <laughs> and I've said before that Bomer especially is a hot basilisk. You can't look him directly in the face because of that. there's that much facial symmetry. Yeah. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Yeah, no, he's he reminds you of Don Draper all the way through the thing. I mean, sure. you can't take that off of the table there. And Bailey is, um, I mean, you know, having seen him in whatever the, uh, with Ruffles in Bridgerton. Bridgerton, yes, yes. I, it, had, it had no connection for me with reality, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at him and I think, well, he's a good looking kid. But yeah. other than that, I didn't have any real reaction. In this, I'm looking at somebody who is attired in the way that people were attired in the 1950s. Therefore, mm -hmm. these were the older teens and early 20s guys that I looked up to and lusted uh -huh. after when I was 12. <laughs> I would have followed him anywhere. Yeah. They're incredibly gorgeous. And they, I was reading, I think it was in the Times, the New York Times, when they were contemplating how to do the sex in here, they wanted never to repeat themselves. Exactly. And always to be talking about power dynamics so that every time you see them, something is changing. And they did that pretty well. I, I, they, they left relatively few things off the table. I mean, let's let's be real, though. I mean, this body fat percentage did not exist in the era of three martini lunches and beef stroganoff. I don't buy it for a second. And it's funny how they tr strive to get everything else, all the historical detail, correct. I also like that they introduce some light kink into the sex mm -hmm. without tut-tutting about it, with just saying, like, this is all playful. But my favorite thing about the show is how it captures the danger of being gay back then, of living in the shadows and speaking in codes and whispers and trying yeah. to find a place just to get together is a big hassle. And you see, one thing it also establishes is that being gay, just being gay, was actually being part of a criminal enterprise because these gay bars back then were run by the mob. The cops got paid off to keep people's names out of the paper. Mm -hmm. Now, the author of the book, Thomas Mallon, is an author of historical fiction who is famous for getting the details right. He does a crazy amount of research. The show was filmed in Toronto, so that one federal-style building in Toronto 
Toronto is getting a lot of work out. I spent half of the eight episodes trying to figure out where the hell is that building? I know it <laughs> yep. has to be down near the district courthouse and it wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like I did a fellow travelers walking tour of DC. So the oh. cozy corner, which they go to is on Florida Avenue. It was okay. a, it's now a Korean barbecue joint. Uh-huh. The chicken hut was an actual gay bar just off Lafayette Square. It's now a parking garage. It closed in the seventies. Do you ever find yourself at the chicken hut, Bob? I did not find myself at the Chicken Hut. That was a little bit before I came out, but it I know of it. Yeah. Um I knew I knew about all those places. Um as a as a gay kid, you are conscious of them mm-hmm. um in ways you probably wouldn't be otherwise. And yeah, they were there and there was no question about it. And I remember the the fear. I I remember I had an uncle who was gay who came to visit us on occasion and you know, he would wander around town and I worried about him. I mean, this is the thing that I couldn't put my finger on in the show, frankly, Bob, is I did detect something in the show's depiction of McCarthy and Cohn. This notion that McCarthy's crusade was justified somehow, but he just went about it in the wrong way. He alleged vast conspiracies. He claimed he had a list of 205 communists. He didn't. He made all that up. He destroyed careers and lives. And I'm getting a, a sense that this guy's methods were wrong, but his crusade was right. Did you pick up on that in the show? Well, I was distressed about it because that is the attitude that um, Tim takes to his boss, McCarthy. And it's wrong, but Mm -hmm. it is consistent with the way a lot of people felt about him. And I think if you were a real conservative person back in the 1950s, you thought he was doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. things changed for enough people that he was no longer able to do what he'd been doing. Well, that's the thing. I mean, at the time Mallon wrote this book, he was a gay Republican. He's not mm-hmm. anymore. I mean, he's left mm-hmm. the Republican Party in 2016, probably still gay. But <laughs> that's what I'm picking up on here is just a sense of not wanting to commit to the monstrosity of this and creating a culture of fear. I think this show really does uh, create the culture of fear. But I think you also sense something else going on because the book, as I say, stays focused on Hawk and Tim in the 50s. The show adds the characters of Marcus, who was a black reporter played by mm-hmm. Jelani Aladdin, and Frankie, the drag performer played by Noah J. Ricketts. It also attempts to give Hawk's wife Lucy, played by Allison Williams, if not an inner life, then more to do than she gets in the right. book. Any thoughts on those performances? The acting in all those cases is quite nice. Um, I especially liked Frankie. Yeah. A terrific and brave and strong character. What was interesting in in this is that the the guys who would normally be called tops (laughs) usually were the ones who were um, one way or another terrified, right? Who were going through life terrified by everything Mm -hmm. that was out there. And I thought that was just an interesting observation. Mm -hmm. I don't usually like television series, but Mm -hmm. this one felt like it was doing something substantial. And I can't imagine this as a film. It, I don't think it would work as well as a film. Yeah. I mean, I can imagine the novel strictly adapted as a film mm. because, I mean, this also, the show brings in the time element. It brings in the anti-war movement of the 60s, the hedonism of the 70s, a very fun series of Fire Island mm-hmm. scenes. And if you know the book, you can feel the show straining to widen out and then ultimately become kind of a chronicle of the queer rights movement. Yep. I yep. think the show understands. Help me out if it doesn't. But like, mm-hmm. I think the show understands that the stakes for these characters are high, but that can't be the only lens that we look at the fight for queer rights through. Because these guys, Tim and Hawk, could hide inside a white male power structure very right. easily the way others who were at the forefront of the queer movement 
at the time, people of color, trans folks, lesbians just couldn't. They couldn't afford They didn't have that luxury. And as a show, I kept feeling that this show wanted to be a true ensemble piece, but was still hamstrung by that original storyline. What'd you feel? I hear what you're saying about it straining. I didn't feel that. I thought it was, it, it worked as a, a unified whole. Okay. That's good. Because that's, that's clearly the intent. The intent yeah. is to bring in more voices uh, I felt like we could have heard more from some of those other voices. But also, let's talk about the way this show's character arcs, because there is a thing that happens in shows that attempt to depict the passage of time as broadly as this does. And that has to do with exposition, right? So you yeah. have to place these characters in context, in the era that they're in, and depict or somehow show how the major events are shaping them. And you can do that in a bunch of different ways. You can do that with title cards. Uh, you can do it in newscasts, which I always think is a cop-out. Yeah. Or you can do it by shoving those big events into the mouths of your characters in a very stiff and clunky way. And I think this opts for that last option again and again and again. And that is the biggest swing. And... As it turns into specifically an AIDS narrative, it falls victim to what a lot of AIDS narratives fall pitfall to, which is you have your characters start spouting statistics and policy initiatives instead of human dialogue. But again and again, I noticed it happening, but I couldn't get mad at it because those <laughs> statistics and those policy initiatives are what these characters, if you've never met an activist, that's mm -hmm. what those characters talk about. That's what they right. care about. So. That worked for me in, in a way that it doesn't in a lot of other shows or, or movie series like this. You know, you talked earlier about how well-researched things are. And I'm going to guess that the television people were doing their research a little bit less well. Okay. Because I – and now this is, this is me as a Broadway nut. At mm -hmm. some point, Mr. McCarthy says he's going to Oklahoma. Yeah. Well, Oklahoma had closed by the time <laughs> he started doing the anti-communist stuff in, in the Senate. And so, I mean, it, it was it had been closed for a couple of years. He should have been saying guys and dolls. I Those kinds of little things are yeah. stupid and will matter only to, you know, the the, the gay guys who are watching this maybe who yep. are Broadway queens. But that's isn't uh -huh. that half the audience? So anyway, I, I have trouble with it. One would think. Uh, I think the other thing this show does is is reveal kind of a grim truth, which was there were a hell of a lot more hawks than Tims uh, back then and, and perhaps now. And if it weren't for activists like Tim who pushed for more, maybe nothing would have changed. Um, yes and no. Mm -hmm. I think the existence of HIV changed the world for gay people generally. Mm -hmm. It's a horrific thing to say, but it is what allowed gay rights to advance in this country because basically mm -hmm. all of us came out of the closet at once. Mm -hmm. um, you, you just couldn't avoid it. it was, you had to help your friends. You had to help yourself. You had to, it, it just, it was suddenly there. Mm -hmm. Tim is a character who, who is saintly, right? Yeah. I mean, at, yeah. at one point, I think he's actually referred to as Saint Tim, right? Yeah. I think that, they make clear what I was saying earlier that the guys who are who who we would all refer to as tops today, the ones who are strong and and um, dominant uh, in life, were the ones who were most closeted because they had the most to lose by losing that dominance. And I think to your point, Bob, they do address that this this notion of everybody coming out at once it, it does become an element of the series uh, at the very end which we can't go into mm -hmm. i kind of want to say to anybody who sees this that if you know 
an elder gay out there. Talk to them about this. This was a profound time in American life and in gay life in America. Profound. And the people who lived it are disappearing. Bob, I appreciate that. And thank you for being here. Thank you. We want to know what you think about fellow travelers. Find us at facebook.com slash PCHH. That brings us to the end of our show. This episode was produced by Ramel Wood and edited by Jessica Reedy and Mike Katzif. And Hello, Come In provides our theme music. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Glenn Weldon, and we'll see you all tomorrow. On Wildcard, the new podcast from NPR, you'll hear people like comedian Jenny Slate reflect on their lives. What is something you think about very differently today than you did 10 years ago? Dressing. Like, not salad dressing. I've always loved it and I'll never stop. <laughs> dressing my body. That's all part of the new game show, Wildcard, only from NPR. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Here at Planet Money, we bring complex economic ideas down to earth. We find weird, fun, interesting stories that explain the way money shapes our lives. Inflation, recessions, the price of gas, we've got you. Listen now to the Planet Money podcast from NPR.